This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 48, the election of 1836 and the bumbling career of Richard Mentor Johnson. There was perhaps nothing more scandalous in antebellum America than an interracial relationship. Miscegenation, defined as the interbreeding of different racial types, was illegal in most states before the Civil War in 1861. In some southern states, the law remained on the books well into the 1960s. But many slave owners, even some of the nation's founding fathers, raped their slaves and had children out of wedlock. It was only because of miscegenation laws that they kept these affairs a secret, even though it may have been the worst kept secret in the history of the United States. But there was one Southern slave owner and politician who fiercely and publicly defied the miscegenation laws. That man was Richard Mentor Johnson. But it wasn't because Johnson was a man dedicated to the principles of equality or because he had a steadfast moral ideology. Johnson was a contradictory and mysterious character whose beliefs were shaped by his experiences in rural antebellum Kentucky. He was a slave owner from a wealthy family, a war hawk, an opponent of large central government, by all accounts, a typical Southern Democrat. He was also a war hero whose exploits on the battlefield during the War of 1812 started a lifelong career in politics. But his career was tainted by corruption, incompetence, and numerous comical failures. But he's remembered most for his marriage to Julia Chin, his slave. A relationship so shocking, it overshadowed his political career, his war record, and nearly derailed the presidential election of 1836. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type 
political scandals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Sound the bugles, rumpsy dumpsy, Richard Johnson killed Tecumseh. This rhyming couplet would somehow be remembered as the least embarrassing aspect of Richard Mentor Johnson's political career. In fact, it would herald his ascent to the vice presidential nomination in the election of 1836. But his scandalous interracial marriage threatened to undermine everything he worked for and the hopes of the Democrats. Julia Chin's ethnicity was mixed. Most records list her as one-eighth African in ancestry, a small fraction, but enough for her to be considered non-white. Non-white was more of a social designation than a legal one. In most states, it meant having less than one-eighth non-white blood. But many people of mixed-race descent either didn't know their ancestry or lacked the paperwork to verify it. So if a person could pass for white, they often did, until it was proven otherwise. The pigmentation of someone's skin was the main factor in whether white society chose to accept them. In the case of Julia Chin, even though she was Johnson's wife, she was never considered his equal. Perhaps owing to the fact that she was his slave, or perhaps because she had darker skin and African-American features. Describing his relationship with Chin in a speech, Johnson defiantly stated, Unlike Jefferson, Clay Poindexter, and others, I married my wife under the eyes of God, and apparently he has found no objections. But theirs was not a normal or healthy relationship either. While Johnson considered Chin to be his wife, as his slave and legal property, she couldn't exactly object to the arrangement. She did take on the duties of a traditional wife, such as managing his plantation, entertaining guests, and bearing him two daughters. It's unclear why Richard Johnson felt as strongly as he did about elevating his wife's position in society. It certainly wasn't because of a moral objection to slavery. Nonetheless, his pride in his relationship was clear, as well as his pride in his two daughters, whom he loved, doted upon, and raised proudly in white society. He wanted his daughters to have the same opportunities and advantages that he had as a child. Instead, they were relentlessly attacked and vilified. They faced obstacles Johnson never could have imagined, the consequences of which would be devastating. As a child, the only obstacles Richard Johnson faced were the occasional Native American raids. He was born in present-day Kentucky in 1780 to one of the state's wealthiest and most prominent families, and he was determined to succeed from a young age. After studying law and passing the bar in Kentucky, Richard began a brief career as a lawyer. He mostly represented poor and rural clients on a pro bono basis, which helped establish his reputation as a man of the people. That reputation got him far. In 1804, at age 24, Johnson was elected to the Kentucky House of Representatives. At the time, there were two major political parties, 
the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Federalists believed in a strong central government, particularly the institution of a central bank, while Democratic Republicans believed in an extremely limited federal government. But the most important issue of the day was slavery. Even though the institution literally divided the northern and southern states, no one could deny it was the foundation of the entire American economy. In the South, slaves were bought, sold, and traded like the cotton they picked. In the industrial North, those same crops were shipped abroad or processed in factories. So while slavery may have been outlawed in northern states, it was still the backbone of their business. And while some northerners hated slavery, few actually believed in equality between the races. And in the South, slaves were basically property. Even the poorest, most imbecilic white person could take comfort in the fact that he or she was superior to a slave. Slavery was the glue that held the Democratic-Republican Party together. The party was gaining popularity at the time, particularly in the South, and especially after the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Capitalizing on this trend, Richard Johnson ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1806, and he won. For the next six years, he was a popular, if undistinguished, congressman. But that all changed with the War of 1812. Several factors contributed to the outbreak of a war between Britain and the United States just a few decades after the Revolution. But it was British involvement in Native American raids on settlers that inspired Richard Johnson to enlist and fight. As a child growing up in the rural country, Johnson was no stranger to Native American attacks. And as a notorious war hawk, he had no hesitation about engaging in another battle against the Brits. The most notorious enemies on the frontier were British General Henry Proctor and his ally, the Native American chief known as Tecumseh. In 1813, Proctor and a coalition of Native American forces killed over 500 American men, mostly Kentuckians, and Johnson swore to avenge their deaths. That promise would lead him into one of the most famous battles in U.S. history, from which he would emerge a hero. Allegedly, this is what happened. At the time, there was no official U.S. military, only loosely assembled militias. It took almost two years, but Johnson organized these militias into one central effort to find and defeat Proctor and Tecumseh. By October 1813, Proctor, Tecumseh, and their men had moved far north into Canadian territory near the Thames River. In their pursuit, Johnson, now joined by his brother James, met up with the forces of General William Henry Harrison. When they reached the Thames River, Harrison and the brothers Johnson found the enemy soldiers assembled in two lines, separated down the middle by a swamp. To the left of the swamp lay Tecumseh and his troops. To the right, Proctor and the British. Luckily, a scout found a clear and direct path across the swamp. By going through the middle, it would allow them to split Proctor's forces from Tecumseh's and battle both sides simultaneously, making it impossible for either to retreat. 
Although the conditions were terrible all over the swamp, they were far worse on the side where Tecumseh and the Native Americans were stationed. They all knew it was risky, practically a suicide mission, but Richard Johnson wasn't about to back down. He ordered his brother James to go around the right side and attack Proctor, telling him, you have a family, I have none. Meanwhile, Richard would take on Tecumseh. And with those brave words and the blare of a bugle, he led hundreds of men into battle. Within minutes, James Johnson and his platoon had killed almost a dozen of the British men, forcing an immediate retreat. But things weren't as simple for Richard. The swampy terrain proved nearly impossible for their horses to navigate. Richard and his horse were both seriously injured during the charge, but as luck would have it, his injured horse led him directly to Chief Tecumseh. Bloody and battered, Richard Johnson rode straight for Tecumseh, avenging the deaths of his fellow Americans who had actually settled on Tecumseh's land in the first place. Unfortunately, the gravely wounded horse tripped and bucked Johnson off just as he entered the chief's line of sight. Not wasting a second, Tecumseh cocked his rifle and fired, blowing off part of Johnson's finger and maiming his wrist. Rather than reload his rifle, Tecumseh dropped it in the mud, raised his tomahawk, and charged. But Richard Johnson squared up, fired his pistol, and hit Tecumseh directly in the chest. After Tecumseh dropped to the ground, Richard Johnson fainted from a massive loss of blood. He had to be carried off the battlefield, but he'd done it. The infamous Tecumseh was dead. Killing a Native American chief was the surest path to glory for an American soldier. The only problem is, there is no direct evidence any of this ever happened. Some accounts suggest Johnson was responsible. Others claim that a different soldier killed Tecumseh. Others still that Tecumseh was already mortally wounded before Johnson even got there. But whatever happened, Johnson came away with war wounds, including a permanently disabled hand, which served as a testament to his bravery. In 1814, before those wounds had a chance to fully heal, Johnson returned to Congress, where he was celebrated as a hero, one with unlimited political capital. And although it would take almost 20 years, Richard Johnson played the long game, biding his time until the moment was right. That moment finally came in 1836, when he appeared likely to succeed Andrew Jackson as the Democratic nominee for president. But in the years since his heroics on the battlefield, Johnson's life had taken a series of bizarre and often comical turns. Turns that would threaten not only his own political future, but that of the Democratic ticket. Coming up, we'll delve into Johnson's scandalous personal life. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In 1819, five years after his legendary defeat of Tecumseh, Congressman Richard Johnson was involved in the first humiliating debacle of his career. It wouldn't be the last. That year, John C. Calhoun, Secretary of War, launched the Yellowstone Expedition. The purpose was to establish a fort in present-day North Dakota. Richard Johnson convinced Calhoun to award the supply contract for the expedition to his brother James the same brother who fought bravely alongside Richard at the Battle of the Thames. Calhoun agreed. What Richard failed to mention was that he and James were business partners. The contract was an exercise in corruption. James Johnson significantly overcharged the government for almost every item. Meanwhile, Richard demanded astronomical advances for work James hadn't even done yet. And the work he did do was less than satisfactory. Of the five steamboats commissioned for the trip, three of them broke down well before they arrived at their destination. The only reason the other two didn't break down is because they were never used. After an audit, it was determined that James Johnson overcharged Congress $76,000 for the steamboats alone worth about $1.5 million in today's dollars. As a result, Congress demanded repayment from the brothers Johnson, a penalty which would put them in debt for the rest of their lives, but one that would also lead to one of Johnson's few triumphs as a legislator. In 1819, still owing to his fame as a war hero, Richard Johnson was elected to the Senate. Though it was a glorious moment for him, it was a bad time for the country. War and depressions throughout Europe had begun to severely affect trade with the United States, particularly in the agricultural sector. Before this, American farmers were doing exceptionally well, and many had borrowed money from banks to buy more land and equipment. But once trade slowed and prices dropped, they couldn't afford to keep making payments. As a result, the central bank began repossessing homes, farms, and businesses at an astonishing rate. At the time, prison was a common punishment for people unable to pay off their debts. And during the Panic of 1819, the debtors' prisons began to swell. Richard Johnson was relatively unscathed by the Panic, but his financial mismanagement and corruption had left him severely in debt, so he felt a certain empathy for the debtors. 
1823, he introduced a bill that would outlaw debtors' prisons across the United States. Although most of his colleagues supported the measure, gridlock and obstruction prevented it from passing until 1832. Still, after nine years, Johnson finally had his triumph. But like everything else he achieved, it was overshadowed by his personal life, one that was growing increasingly bizarre. Most shocking of all was his relationship with Julia Chin. It's not known exactly when Johnson began this quote-unquote relationship. Chin had been one of his father's slaves, and Johnson inherited her around 1815, when he was 35. It's also not known why Johnson took Chin as his so-called wife. Although it was a marriage warped by slavery and an inherent power imbalance, it's possible that Johnson was simply in love. Another theory is that it was an act of rebellion. During his youth, Johnson had dated a young white woman whom his mother disapproved of. Johnson's brothers and sisters had all married within or above their station, and she wanted the same for Richard. So the union was called off. So, like an angry teenager, it's possible that Richard chose Julia as his partner to spite his own mother. Whatever his motivation, few people found the union appropriate or acceptable. Johnson and Chin invited more scorn by deigning to raise their mixed-race daughters in white society. The fact that the daughters were gifted young women who excelled in their studies, attended church, took piano lessons, and outshined many of their white classmates was egregious to the rest of the neighbors. It was a threat to the Southern racial hierarchy and the institution of slavery itself. Hometown newspapers described Chin as, quote, a jet-black, thick-lipped, odiferous wench. Yet another scolded Johnson for having, quote, reared a family of children whom he endeavored to force upon society as equals. Chin died of cholera in 1833, and Johnson was deeply affected. When he was done grieving, he took up a relationship with another one of his slaves. When she tried to leave him for another man, he tracked her down, sold her off at an auction, and began a relationship with her sister. With all of this going on in Johnson's personal life, it's almost unfathomable that he was chosen as Martin Van Buren's running mate in the election of 1836. The vitriol Johnson would face from the national press during the election was far worse than anything he experienced in Kentucky. But rather than find a different, more appropriate running mate, the Democrats set about burnishing the positive aspects of Johnson's image as a war hero. Richard Emmons, a popular poet and playwright, wrote a biographical play about Johnson's heroics called Tecumseh or the Battle of the Thames. Emmons penned the line, Sound the bugles, rumsey dumsey, Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh. Though not as catchy as Abraham Lincoln's Don't Change Horses in Midstream, or even Jimmy Carter's memorable slogan, Not Just Peanuts, Johnson believed the rumsey dumsey line would propel him to victory. The election itself was essentially a referendum on the sitting president, Andrew Jackson. 
Like Jackson, Van Buren and Johnson were Democrats who ran on a platform of small government, westward expansion, and slavery. But Van Buren was a wealthy northerner, so Richard Johnson was most likely chosen because he was the closest thing the party could find to another Andrew Jackson. He was a war hero from the frontier who was popular with Southern voters and whose dubious marriage would threaten to derail the whole election. The opposition party, the Whigs, were represented by Johnson's one-time brother-in-arms, William Henry Harrison. The Whigs were essentially the anti-Jackson party. But if they had a specific mandate, it was big government, lots of tariffs, and a central banking system. In keeping with American tradition, the Whigs focused on attacking their opponents' personal character, more so than their political principles. To the extent that they went after Van Buren, the attacks were pretty benign. They characterized him as an abolitionist and a wealthy northern elitist. Their attacks on Richard Johnson, though, were vicious. The northern Whigs were mostly anti-slavery, Yet they courted the racist Southern vote by relentlessly attacking Johnson's interracial relationships. It was hypocritical, but it worked. At the time, candidates rarely campaigned in person. Mostly, they stayed in Congress or in their home states and used the media to promote themselves. But Van Buren and Johnson were among the first people to undertake a modern campaign, crisscrossing the country to give speeches. And true to form, Richard Johnson found a way to embarrass himself on the campaign trail. While campaigning in New York, one of Johnson's slaves, who may have been related to his former wife, managed to escape from his plantation in Kentucky. Johnson hired slave catchers to retrieve him, but they were unsuccessful. Naturally, this fiasco was a goldmine for the anti-slavery Whigs. The Whigs even brought Johnson's heroism on the battlefield into question, suggesting that he hadn't actually killed Tecumseh, or if he had, that it had been a lucky shot. But it was their attacks on Johnson's family that had the most distressing effects. In fact, one of Richard's daughters died during the campaign, reportedly from the stress, exhaustion, and grief brought on by the personal attacks. After a grueling, nasty, and lethal campaign, the question on everyone's mind was the same. Would Van Buren's running mate cost him the election? We'll reveal the results after this. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. 
Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. The answer is almost. Richard Johnson almost cost Van Buren the election. In fact, the Democrats lost Johnson's home state of Kentucky. But somehow they managed enough votes to narrowly defeat the Whigs. Richard Johnson, however, still wasn't out of the woods. Van Buren and Johnson still had to be confirmed by the Electoral College. And the electors from Virginia, though they were happy to confirm Van Buren, refused to vote for Johnson. If you've been following this show from the beginning, you've seen this before. The Electoral College can technically do whatever they want, regardless of how their states voted, and that can be bad news when one of the candidates is personally hated by everyone. So the vote for vice president was tied, and as dictated by the 12th Amendment, the choice fell to the Senate. The decision was between Richard Johnson and William Henry Harrison's running mate, Francis Granger. The vote was split directly along party lines, but the Democrats had more manpower, and finally, Richard Mentor Johnson was confirmed as vice president. On the horizon lay a bright political future, an opportunity to extricate himself from crushing debt and restore his tarnished reputation. Unfortunately for him, none of those things happened. John Garner, who was later vice president to Franklin Roosevelt, famously described the office as not being worth a bucket of warm spit. That was certainly the case for Richard Mentor Johnson. After all he'd been through to get there, Van Buren almost never sought Johnson's counsel or advice. The two rarely interacted at all. Johnson was mostly relegated to the Senate, where all mediocre vice presidents are banished. During his vice presidency, it wasn't Johnson's intellect or accomplishments that brought him the most attention. It was his bizarre wardrobe. According to legend, Johnson was walking with a friend in Virginia when they passed a men's shop with a striking red vest and bow tie on display in the window. Johnson suggested they each buy one so they could be twins. It's unclear whether Johnson's friend ever agreed, but Johnson himself supposedly wore the outfit every single day for the next decade, even though it grew threadbare and stained. It eventually became a source of embarrassment for President Van Buren, who was always immaculately dressed. Perhaps Richard Johnson couldn't afford more than one vest. After all, he was still in massive debt from his general financial incompetence. And even as vice president, Johnson couldn't figure out a way to grow rich off kickbacks. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. He took a nine-month leave of absence to open a tavern in his home state of Kentucky. Yes, the vice president of the United States left the capital to run a tavern. In fact, he served as the bartender. Unfortunately for Johnson, while many people visited to witness the VP serving drinks, the establishment did little to ease his crushing debt. 
For this and other reasons, it was becoming clear that Johnson's mental faculties were declining. His few speeches on the Senate floor were characterized by rambling non-sequiturs, and his appearance grew even more unkempt. Johnson did try one final, apparently well-intentioned endeavor, the establishment of an academy for Native Americans. It's hard to know whether the plan was just a way for Johnson to siphon taxpayer funds or if he truly believed in the cause. But it seemed a noble enough pursuit that other politicians joined the initiative and Johnson was able to secure funding for the school. Initially, it was quite successful at educating young Native Americans. But the quality of the school quickly declined and any semblance of structure evaporated. The academy became little more than a reformatory where children were taught to fight and gamble, sometimes with their teachers. All the while, Richard Johnson skimmed what he could from the school's paltry funding, though it was nowhere near enough to put a dent in his debts. The school itself was eventually shut down, due in large part to an expose in the Cincinnati Evening Post on its founder, Richard Mentor Johnson. The writer, who not only visited the school, but also Johnson's plantation and tavern, described Johnson as being clad in his morning gown regardless of the time of day and often being found living amongst the slave quarters. As for the tavern, it was, quote, little more than an overcrowded dining hall which served bad food, muddy water, and lacked ice. From this disgusting hellhole, Johnson rode out the remainder of his vice presidency. When the election of 1840 rolled around, he was, unsurprisingly, dropped from Van Buren's ticket. But the Democrats had trouble agreeing on another vice presidential nominee. To their dismay, while they squabbled, Johnson took to campaigning on his own behalf. In one last humiliating incident, while Johnson was giving a speech in Detroit, his former wife's brother, Daniel Chin, escaped to Canada. In case the people had forgotten, this was a timely reminder that Johnson had married his slave. Needless to say, Richard Mentor Johnson did not secure the vice presidential nomination. And when election day came, Van Buren was defeated by William Henry Harrison. Johnson spent the last years of his life in Kentucky, suffering from a series of illnesses, until he died of a stroke in 1850. Before his death, he transferred ownership of his slaves to his surviving daughter from his marriage to Julia Chin. This bequest, however, was not to be. Because of her mixed heritage, Johnson's daughter was deemed illegitimate in the eyes of the courts, and the property was instead split among Johnson's white family members. Richard Mentor Johnson's life was a profile in shame, incompetence, and scandal. He worked diligently to secure benefits for veterans and their families and introduced a bill to outlaw debtors' prisons. But it was his relationship with Julia Chin that he'd be remembered for. And though he defended Julia and their mixed-race daughters in public and private, it wasn't on the basis of equal rights or abolishing slavery. His lifelong behavior was proof that he considered his slaves as property, 
even if they were also his family. We may never know how Chin felt about her husband, but by today's definitions, their relationship was nothing short of rape. And while his myriad shortcomings are genuinely funny and pathetic, Richard Johnson deserves to be relegated to obscurity. But whether he deserved all the mudslinging and personal insults during the election of 1836, there's no denying the precedent his case set. It's an effect that's still felt today, from local elections to the highest office in the nation. Nothing is off limits, no family member is immune, and racism is the most effective way to polarize voters. Maybe this will change in the future. Perhaps candidates will stop focusing on the issues that divide us and focus instead on what unites us. But as long as racism persists, whether it's quiet or overt, it will always be a part of politics in the United States. Next week, we'll be back with another election-defining debacle, Scandal 47, the election of 1876. Forty years after Richard Johnson, another contested election fell to Congress. And this time, racism and corruption wouldn't just threaten the vice presidency. The chaos would go all the way up to the top. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.